destination, obligation, altercation, interest of conflict, population, lost your patience, confirmation, symptoms of a hostage. Today we're excited to introduce Daniel Brawl, a friend who is dedicated to finding sustainable solutions to the homelessness epidemic here in Los Angeles. From working in Mayor Garcetti's Office of Economic Opportunity with the Homelessness Policy Team, to now running as an Assembly Delegate to the California Democratic Party, Daniel is here to speak with us about his perspective on the matter and ways we can help. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes, yes perfectly. How are you? Good hey, it's been so long. I know, I haven't seen you in so long. Tiffany, it's nice to meet you. Sean, it's so good you to too. see you. Have you been? Good. Things have just been moving so quickly, doing this election thing. So, so exciting. Crazy. I'm so proud of you. It's such a big deal. I was just going to say I'm really proud of you guys and everything you're doing with homelessness. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it's such an unsexy issue. People don't really want to get involved. Everybody right. wants to help, but nobody knows how to get involved. So uh, just thanks for what you guys are doing. Well, I think that you've done a lot more than we have, <laughs> and we're really excited to learn from you. Yeah. I, don't have, I just want to say up front, I don't have all the answers, so I hope I don't disappoint anybody. Figuring it out all together. Yeah, through this process of interviewing people that are living out on the streets, we've realized that this issue is there's not one way to fix it. Exactly. I'm excited to share what I did and my experience working at the mayor's office, but I was there for about a year and I still don't have a clear answer. There is no clear answer. And anybody who tells you there's a clear answer is lying to you. Right. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Daniel Brawl. I was born and raised here in Los Angeles, California. I'm the son of Iranian Jewish immigrants. I went to UCLA, well, two years at Santa Monica College. Then transferred to UCLA. I studied business, econ, and history. And when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I always loved music and entertainment. I thought that's where I want to be. I worked really hard to get a job at William Morris Endeavor, which is a talent agency here in Beverly Hills. I was working in their music department for about two years. I still love music and entertainment, but I knew just from my time there, I didn't want to be an agent. And I wanted to go back to school when everybody's unsure of what they want to do, they just go to law school to kind of buy time and figure it out. So I thought to myself, like, look, I'm really into politics. I'm still into entertainment and music. So maybe that's something I could still do while I'm in law school. So let me just apply. And this could be another notch in my belt because when you have a law degree, you could do so many different things. So I actually applied before I started at William Morris and I deferred a year. After my two years there, I'm like, you know what? I just need to make the leap. So I went to law school at Loyola in 2017, and I recently just graduated in May. Now I am waiting to find out my bar results, which they said will come out next month, which is scary, but crossing my fingers. And now I'm running for this assembly delegate position for District 50 here in California. Wow. You've done a lot. Um, Not enough. If you haven't done enough, then I don't know where I stand. (laughs) I always feel like, you know, it's nice to say I finished law school and things like that, but I don't feel like I've done anything special yet. So I just always want to be in a position where I can do more. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Yes, in a sense, we're all our worst critics. Mm -hmm. In a good way, though, with balance. Yes. 
So after you were working in the music industry, you started interning for Mayor Garcetti? Well, not quite just after that. It was during my first year of law school. When you're in law school, the obvious next path is, all right, you want to practice in a law firm for your first summer job, but you still have a little bit of room to experiment, at least in your first year summer. But mm -hmm. I knew like, all right, I, let me use this year to at least experiment and be sure that government and politics is where I want to be. So right. I kept applying for a job at the mayor's office. And I wanted to work there because it's local. I was a fan of Mayor Garcetti at the time. And I really wanted to work in policy and government experience. So I sent in a normal application on the website and I didn't think that would go anywhere. It's kind of a funny story how I got this job. But so I told a professor of mine who if I always talk about him when I get a chance, Professor Nockleby. He makes an effort to help every student find whatever job they want. And he's known to be this angel in the school. And he's also politically interested and has his own connections. And I said, look, I applied to work for Mayor Garcetti. How do I get in? And two weeks after we had that conversation, he forwarded me an email saying, look, who's going to be coming to speak at the school? And it was Mayor Garcetti. So he's like, I suggest you make plans to attend. And I'm a typically reserved guy. I think Shama knows. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of quiet and I don't do anything crazy, but... I thought to myself, look, this can be a once in a lifetime chance. Let me see if I can talk to him. I waited, he finished his speech and I noticed he's about to leave. And I don't know what got into me, but he was surrounded by his team. And I went up to him and I interjected. And I'm like, Mary Garcetti, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Daniel. And I just want to throw my hat in the running as your running mate when you run for president. What year was this? This was 2018. Okay, so he had just been reelected. Yeah, and that's when everybody was saying, all right, this guy's going to be running for president. I thought he would be running for president. So I'm like, I always try to make a joke because one, it kind of eases the awkwardness and two, it'll make the moment more memorable. Right. And he laughed and he's like, well, you know, you have to be 35, right? And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe I can grow out a beard. <laughs> I'm like, all right, look, well, I did apply to work for you this summer. And he's like, oh, great. Well, hopefully I'll see you there. And then he just left. Long story short, I told that same professor, Professor Nockleby, about that. And on his off day, when he wasn't even working, he took me around the school, trying to figure out which faculty member was responsible for getting Garcetti here. And after two hours, we got to the professor who forwarded my resume to the deputy mayor, who ended up being my boss for a year and a half at the mayor's Wow. Yeah. I know, me too. <laughs> I know that was a long story, but that's why whenever I would make an effort to stop students and people who are just starting and looking for jobs. You definitely got that from your professor. Yes. So adamant about getting you what you wanted and what you were passionate about. Exactly. So. And where you are now. <laughs> done so much more for me since then. So, And one thing he always tells me, he says, you don't need to do it for me. You just always remember to represent the powerless. Always yeah. says that to me. So, Whatever I do, I do it because I, I want to make him proud and show him that his investment in me was worth it. Well, that's a good leeway to what you were specifically doing under Mayor Garcetti. Yeah. We talked about how you were working in the homelessness division. Yeah. Could you tell us what you did specifically? So I got a job offer to work in his Office of Economic Opportunity. 
which is just one branch within the mayor's office and the deputy mayor, Brenda Shockley. So when I applied, they said, look, we need an intern to work on homelessness policy initiatives. And at the time I was like, oh great, like, okay, this is his number one policy priority and this is the opening, I'll take it. So we started off doing a lot of research. I came in very green. I didn't know much about his work and his initiatives. Mm-hmm. But I studied a lot in the beginning and I was so lucky to work with amazing people in that office. It was me and Celeste, the director, and Zita Davis, the executive director, and I was under their wing. So I came in right at the time when the city budgeted about $85 million for homelessness initiatives. We tried to see how we could maximize those dollars, $85 million. So one thing we did is we toured all nine major Skid Row shelters. Hmm. try to see how can we best spend that money. So we went every single day to a new shelter, toured the shelter, spoke not only to the executive staff, but we spoke to the people who were experiencing homelessness who were living there and asking them, what are you missing? You know, how is your day-to-day life here? And whether it was more shelter beds, showers, lockers, entertainment facilities, different things like that. I was just an intern. But they gave me the latitude to kind of explore and and do what I want as if I wasn't an intern. So that was something I was really lucky for. This was around the time of the midterm elections. And I'm really into politics and I'm a Democrat. So I wanted to find ways where I could get involved. So I leaded the voter registration efforts in the Office of Economic Opportunity, which we know that people experiencing homelessness are neglected in a million ways. And not the least of which is representation in government. So we thought, all right, why don't we go try to get people experiencing homelessness registered? Uh, It's going to be hard, but there are people too, they have issues that need to be addressed. So we stationed several voter registration drives in Skid Row, in different hospitals, all over Skid Row. And we ended up registering 172 people experiencing homelessness. And that sounds like a light number, but it's hard. And a lot of these people were skeptical. So it takes a lot of training and getting their feedback, why they feel like it may not be worth their time, but also what their concerns were and what they would want from somebody who's in a position of power to help them if they're going to be giving them their support. So that was one thing that I was really proud of doing there. Wow, that's incredible. It's actually interesting because when we talk to a lot of people who are living on the streets, they have this sort of distrust yes. in people who are in have high power in the government. And for you guys to get 172 votes, you would have to build a lot of trust mm-hmm. because you're coming from a branch of government. Yeah. So I think that's incredible. And you should be very proud of that. It's amazing. What were some of the responses that you got when you were at the shelters, touring all nine of them and asking our homeless community what could be done better? Well, some were very reluctant to talk and understandably so because they didn't know who we were. I was coming in a suit, which was maybe a mistake, but that was what I was supposed to be wearing at the office. (laughs) Um, But I was taking notes. I tried to convey that I was genuine about the issues that they were experiencing and Some of them were saying, I don't necessarily feel safe in some spaces because there would be shelters where it was just so overcrowded. Mm. 
they didn't have places where they could stash their belongings safely. Mm-hmm. They felt like there were too many people there, not enough beds even, or they wanted to bring maybe a pet. There's so much on your mind when you're experiencing homelessness and a pet adds so much relief to your life. Sure. There are also so many creative spaces in these shelters, like places where they can garden, draw, and entertainment, areas where they could just get their mind off of the struggle of their everyday life. So it was just that everybody had something different. One thing that they really cared about is sharing their own experience. How did they get there and what affected them and trying to show like, look, we are normal people and it's not like we choose to be homeless. It's not like this is a path we pursued in our life. You never know when misfortune can strike. It's like, okay, a bad break with the job or you have a mental health issue. You have family that may no longer support you because you're transgender. So they kick you out of the home and different things like that. So a lot of listening to personal stories that were pretty moving. I remember when the mayor's office opened the homeless help desk where people can come and get like flyers and services. It was just like a one-stop shop kind of kiosk. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was staffing it one day and somebody came in who was just asking like, Oh, where can I go? Or a bus voucher or something like that. I don't quite remember. And I was just asking him about his story and he was telling me how he's this talented artist, like showing me his work and telling me like, his brother does this, his dad, does, they're still in contact. It made me step back and realize a lot of these people, they're so talented, they had a past life and they just want help, they want a chance. So, so many eye-opening experiences and uh, just, I was lucky to be doing that. Speaking with them and having a chance to hear their personal story also, reinforces the value of human connection I think is something that they lack once being homeless for a long time and they forget the feeling of having any kind of human connection that feels very genuine yes to build on that one thing I learned from my time talking to the folks on the ground is it's not just the human connection but it's the way we approach the conversation and one mistake that I think elected officials and other people make is that they come in with a paternalistic attitude and it's like, oh, what do I think is in your best interest? Rather than humbling yourself and asking them, like, as somebody who's experiencing this every single day, what do you need? What are you missing? What is that one thing that will change your life? So I think we kind of need to change the way we approach this conversation. That's really important and that connects to what we're doing in a way where we go on the streets and we politely ask them if they're willing to be interviewed. We explain what our podcast is aiming to do. And a lot of the people we've been interviewing recently are the ones on Veteran Row. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, we live blocks away from a really privileged community. And we get such mixed feelings. You know, some people come and they bring food and they have conversations with them and treat them like they're normal people but then on the opposite end you have people who ignore them and take pictures and say oh my god this is disgusting and what they don't realize is that's hurtful and then with all that aside these are veterans that fought for your freedom yes put aside the homelessness aspect of it but if you just focus on the fact that they fought for you and they put their lives on the line how can you not pay attention to that and still 
talk down on them. It's shameful, honestly. It's like these people sacrifice their life for our lives. We can't even get our shit together to help them out and get them off the street. It just shows you how backwards our system is. It's something that needs to change. Yeah, but I think that it comes with understanding both sides. And from the conversations that we've had with those living on Veterans Row, it seems like they have an understanding of, oh, well, we know that this isn't the best thing for your kids to be looking at. And you pay taxes too. And we understand that this isn't something that you are used to seeing. Yeah. At the same time, we hope that you understand that. So it's that mutual understanding, I think, that needs to be discovered. I think that's really important. One thing that I try to tell friends or people I talk to about homelessness, and you guys know, you'll talk to somebody and they'll say, like, they shouldn't have these tents here. Like, it's an eyesore, for lack of better words. You have to kind of take a step back and realize they have nowhere else to go. And it's not like they're being lazy and they want to hand out this is a failure of government this is a failure of system we're not addressing the underlying issues of affordable housing mental health you have to get to the root cause of why these people are homeless to begin with and address that one thing i try to emphasize is people like us need to step up to the plate also and change our attitude it's i wrote an article before i started in the mayor's office talking about why it's time we get serious about homelessness and it's so important for the public to apply pressure on our elected officials to do something about it because otherwise they'll just kick the can down the road and try to put a temporary band-aid on the issue but what's important is the right type of pressure we can't be telling them like get them out of my sight because that doesn't alleviate the issue we have to readjust our mentality and understand that when it comes down to building a homeless shelter, for example, the mayor's office has this program called A Bridge Home, where every council district has to open up a homeless shelter. And I was lucky enough to help build one. And you won't believe how much pushback there was. And I thought to myself, I can't believe this. You're pushing back on the idea of a homeless shelter that's state of the art, has wraparound services. That's nice. It's not like it degrades the integrity of the community. And you're complaining about that? All right, so what do you expect? If you don't want a homeless shelter, nothing else is going to be done. We need to refocus on where our priorities are. More specifically, people in the more privileged community. Again, the out of sight, out of mind. And there is this sense of entitlement that I've felt or seen with, I think, more of the older generations I've talked to in our community that, like what you said, they shouldn't be here. Why are the tents here? Why are they on the streets? Well, It's not that simple, first of all. And second of all, where's your empathy? Why don't you feel for these people, you know? Speaking of our community and the Bridge Home program, there's been a lot of backlash against that program because there has been so much money put into it and apparently only a few shelters that have actually been put up. There's so much pushback and I can only go into so much detail, but I'll give you an example in Venice. So the mayor's office would have maybe a town hall every now and then in each council district to engage the concerns of the community about opening up a bridge home site in their community. And one of the mayor's office employees, I won't name her, but she stepped in for the mayor during the town hall and talked about this is what the mayor's plan is. And she was met with so much pushback. I won't even repeat what they were saying to her, but it was just unbelievable. 
the bridge home program, it's not perfect, but it's a step and it's getting people sheltered. It's giving them services, hygiene. I don't know if you got a chance to see the bridge home shelter we opened up called Casa Azul, which was amazing. And the turnaround time from the moment we discovered that vacant area to the time they opened it up and now it's housing 40 women and children. It's just, it's beautiful. And there's artwork all over inside there. There's a kitchen, there's a garden. It's amazing. Wow, that's incredible. Specifically regarding this program, I think a lot of people like to blame Garcetti for not enough being done. Would you say it's less about him and more about the people who are pushing back? Definitely both. You can always do more as an elected official, but you're also kind of strapped with what you can do because you need the support of city council or you need the support of the public. Everybody's in on this. It needs all hands on deck. You can't do one thing if somebody else is giving such fierce opposition to it. I don't know if you've heard of the right to counsel law, but the right to counsel law, which I was lucky enough to draft, it offers free legal representation to low-income tenants who are facing eviction. And obviously we know how critical that is right now, especially during coronavirus, because so many people can't afford rent and they can't afford a lawyer to help them in court to fend off their eviction if it's unjustified. So we wrote that law, it was passed by city council, but they couldn't even fund it properly to make it function. And that's a failure of government. This is a safety net that we know works, that will help people and get them off the streets. It's a preventative measure from becoming homeless and kind of breaking that cycle. And you can't even find enough money to fund it properly. That's an issue. That's a lack of vision and prioritization. Can you quickly run through how budgeting works when building shelters, just so that we can get an understanding of how much money goes into building, let's say, Casa Azul? Mm -hmm. Well, to be honest, it's so complex. What I can speak on is how it works. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a long process, and every mayor's department is asking for X amount of money for X initiative, because everybody has a project that they think will be amazing and help their community, whether it's a beautification project, a a park, something like that. But so every department is like, these are what we want for this coming fiscal year. This is how much it's going to cost. And the budgeting office looks at it and sees like, all right, we'll give you this money for this project and we'll allocate this much for your department. So other than that, we also know there's a general fund, which money comes out of that, but I can't really expound on that too much. And another question I had on Casa Azul and shelters in general, through interviewing our homeless community, we've heard a lot of people discuss the difficulty in finding shelters that are walking distance from where they are and getting on a wait list, not being able to have a phone that works and just having communication and transportation issues. Mm -hmm. Did you run into any roadblocks like that? And how did you overcome that kind of conflict? Yeah, so everything you just mentioned is what we would hear from people experiencing homelessness who were living in the shelters at the time. Like maybe they don't have a phone, it's far, they can't bring their dog. Mm -hmm. We thought to ourselves like, 
if we give this money to this shelter, will it alleviate that issue? Or when we're building out Casa Azul, what can we have in here that people actually need? And whether it's like wraparound services, job training programs, that's really important. Obviously, if you take a step back, you realize people who are experiencing homelessness, they can't focus on finding a job and getting ready for a job interview when they don't have a place to sleep. That's a secondary issue. Your primary concern is, where am I sleeping tonight? Do I have a roof over my head tonight? Or for me and my child, you're not going to be thinking about, oh, let me prepare for this interview. Your mind is totally not on that. Right. I don't know if that answered your question, but... It did in a sense, but I guess my question is more, does the shelter take initiative to try to inform our homeless community or is it more whoever comes into the door, we take care of them and we handle it on a case-by-case basis? It's more of a case-by-case basis. I think there's a database of people who are looking for shelter. Mm -hmm. Also, to answer your previous question about, oh, it's far from this location and it's not really a good location. What we did before even certifying Casa Azul as a location for the next bridge home site, I looked around on Google Map, what's in that area in like a five, 10 mile radius? Are there supermarkets? Are there schools? Is there a hospital here? Like what's in the surrounding area? If they need to go somewhere, can they go there? And right. it was a perfect location. Like there was a mini mart next door. I mean, if you'll drive by it, it's on 1920 West Third Street. I'm sure you've passed by it. It's in a perfect location and a safe location too. And I know that's a primary concern of not just the people who are living there, but council and the community. Like, all right, you're going to be putting a shelter that's kind of close to a school. How is that going to work? But then you also supply security to the bridge home shelter. And a bridge home is primarily for women or is it solely? Okay, how? It's everything. But I think this one they dedicated specifically to women and children because that was the need at the time and still is. Yeah. Um, it's also hard to make a mixed gender homeless shelter because there are instances of abuse or things like that, as you can imagine. Right, definitely. I wanted to touch on the drug and alcoholism that goes on in our homeless community mm-hmm. and how that is used as a crutch and any ideas that you have on how we can help overcome that part. That's a great question. There's so many ways to address that. One, that is an issue. And as I was touring these shelters, I would see needles on the floor. Especially Skid Row. Especially in Skid Row. I mean, I only went to Skid Row, so that's all I saw. But there's a couple things that we need to do about that. One, we kind of need to destigmatize drug use. And by that, I'm not saying, you know, we should make it okay. But in other countries, you'll see they have things called safe injection sites. And I think that's something that's so important that we kind of need to test out here because if they're going to be doing it, then we might as well do it under supervision where we can ensure that it's not going to be a harm to them or anybody else. And if you don't have needles just lying around in the streets that somebody may step on or pick up and reuse, and that will just perpetuate different diseases and things like that. I think there was one shelter that had a place where you could drop off used needles. And I think that's a great idea. Also, This goes back to the need for mental health services. There needs to be different mental health sites, drop-in locations at Skid Row, where people can come in and be like, 
I need help. I need to kick this drug habit of mine. What can I do? So right. a lot of these people are doing it because it's there for them. There's people who are giving it to them. Their life is tough. They want an escape. But in terms of what can we do about stopping the spread from tent to tent, that's hard. I'm kind of on the fence about that because that also means that you're allowing police officers to raid a tent and go in there and invade their personal space. That's their home. I know people don't think of it like, oh, a tent is a home, but that's their home. They have their personal belongings there. That's their privacy. And yes, it's a tough question because you do want to stop them from harming themselves or other people by using drugs. But it's like at the expense of maybe demolishing their tent or giving them a fine or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know either. And when I speak to the people that have overcome it, it's always, oh, I hit rock bottom. I had a moment of clarity and then I got myself out of it. But it, it was a lot more of a self-disciplinary action than it was yeah. somebody. I mean, maybe somebody helped them see through it all, but yeah. it really took more from them than it did from anybody else. Yes. I think it does have more to do with stopping the spread. Yes. Actually, one thing that's very surprising is I realized that some folks actually know who the big dealers are, and maybe even some police officers oh. know that. And I don't want to say they allow it to happen, but I think they kind of try to control it. And how much does the controlling really do? I don't know. That's why I don't want to make any assumptions here, but that's one right. thing that I kind of sensed as well. Well, there also are some shelters here in LA that do help with the mental health and drug abuse issues mm -hmm. if people living on the streets want the help. Mm -hmm. Andrew, in our previous interview, mentioned he works at the Midnight Mission. Yes. And he himself experienced drug use. And so he's giving back to the community. That's amazing. By being in the mission and helping those who actually want it. But then again, it's those who want it. But there's so many good stories of people like Andrew. I mean, I met so many people like him who were formerly homeless and have had such a transformational experience because somebody helped them. Right. And they wanted to pay for it. They started working at the shelter trying to help other people who were in their experience. And that's just such a beautiful story. It's a very humbling yeah. thing to hear about. I mean, it's a similar story to the one that you have with your professor and what has inspired you to give back to your own form of a mentorship program. Yeah. So it's that chain effect. It really does work. Yes. Why did you stop working in Garcetti's office? So I was reaching about a little over a year working there. And okay. I didn't really see myself moving up at the time. And I wanted a new experience. When you're in law school, it's kind of nice to try different things. And I spent a year here. Obviously, I'm not an expert in any way, but let me just try something new. And I also did desperately need some legal experience. So I applied to work for the city attorney, who luckily was just in City Hall. So I worked for him for about eight months, which was also a fantastic experience. Awesome. Wow, that's awesome. And now you're not working for... No, now I'm no longer there. I stopped working there to study for the bar exam. Um, and also... You mean you couldn't do both at once? 
No, I mean, I wish I could, but I, my time there was up too. You're asking for a lot here. <laughs> no, I, that's a good question. I wish I could. I loved it there. I, I still talk to everybody. I'm very close and I, I'm so grateful for both those offices because I'm still very good friends with the people I work there. That's one thing as I look for jobs now is the people who I'll be working with and for in the environment because it's so important. You've taken this approach where you want to help people. And in this article published by the Beverly Hills Weekly, you spoke about why you're running to be an assembly delegate. And you said, I just want to help people who don't have a voice, don't have representation often, feel like they're overlooked and neglected because I have empathy, which is so sorely lacking in our leaders right now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what an assembly delegate is and what you're hoping to accomplish when you win? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I know it's something that's kind of nebulous. I admittedly didn't know what an assembly delegate was even a month ago. But this was presented to me by, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Sam Yebri, who is running for Los Angeles City Council for District 5. He connected me with somebody else because he knew I really wanted to get involved in politics in some capacity. I still didn't know what at the time, and I was always interested in running for office. I just wasn't ready yet, and I'm not ready yet for higher office, to be honest. Still a lot of growth that I need to do personally, but he presented it to me like, this is an important pathway for you. You get to see like what it's like to run a campaign. You're in a position where you can help after an hour of my phone conversation with this guy, Matthew Finkelstein, who's also running. I'm like, all right, I wanna do this. So to answer your question, an assembly delegate is for lack of better terms, an official member of the California Democratic Party. They're responsible for endorsing local and statewide candidates, propositions, ballot measures, and ultimately crafting the California Democratic Party platform. And they serve a two year term. So every year there's a convention, we meet, we hammer issues out, and we form the California Party platform. And why that's important, I think, kind of gets lost. California is the largest and most influential state party. And where the California Democratic Party platform goes, the Democratic Party platform writ large will follow. And I know people are kind of still traumatized from the past election we had. And this seems like small potatoes, but it's important because these are people who are shaping the future of our party. So if you want to have a say, then it's important to get involved. Right. If you're starting at a smaller scale Mm -hmm. and you're expecting yourself to move up in the political world. Yes. Yeah. this is like the root basically of the people that you're building up to be in that power that end up affecting. Yes. You got it. That's exactly a virtual high five. First of all, it's what you make of it. You can do nothing and just have to go to the state convention once a year, but you can actually see if you can do something meaningful with it, whether that's putting forward resolutions or, forming coalitions with people who are in the party because there's about 3,200 delegates that make up the California Democratic Party. So it's like, it really is what you make of it. Right. This might be a stupid question, but are there Republican delegates? 
Not, I think so. And it's funny because <laughs> one of my friends who shall go unnamed was asking me if there is, because he saw, <laughs> he saw me doing this and he's not a Democrat by any means. You want to vote for a Republican one? He wanted to know if there is a Republican delegate, Republican California party. And I said, I'm sure there is, but no. So in order to vote and participate in this election, you have to be a registered Democrat residing in that respective assembly district. So I'm running for District 50. So that means only registered Democrats in my district can vote for me. But the thing is, you can switch your party affiliation to become a Democrat and still participate and vote. And I've been uh, fortunate enough to have a lot of friends who, to support me, have switched their party affiliation. And yeah, you know, more participation. That's awesome. Why is that, that you have to be registered as a Democrat to vote for the Democratic Party? I guess it's because the Democratic Party wants to ensure that this is what we as a party want to see, what our values are. So only Democrats should be able to have a say in it. Got it. You recently launched your platform in early December. Can you run us through some of the policies that you stand by? Yeah. So there's so many things I care about, and this is not exhaustive, my platform, but my main priority issues are obviously homelessness and poverty, systemic racism and inequality, climate change, doing something about this egregious gun violence epidemic. And then two things that I really care about that maybe aren't getting that much attention is democracy reform. That, I guess you could say, is getting a lot of attention, at least in democratic spaces, and foreign policy. I'm really into foreign policy, so I just want to ensure that California Democratic Party has a more expansive and generous worldview in the way we approach other countries and the way we conduct ourselves overseas. That's awesome. I know on your Instagram, you did a few posts about these categories and more specifics on what you hope to accomplish. Can you go over specifically the homelessness division yeah, and what you hope to accomplish? So there's a couple things. One thing that's important, and we kind of touched on this, is there's this law called 4118D in Los Angeles, which prohibits people from sitting, lying, and sleeping on public streets. And if I'm not mistaken, it's there's a certain window of time where you're allowed to do that. I want to make sure that people experiencing homelessness have the ability to sit, lie, sleep on these sidewalks unless there's an objective public safety need. There's certain caveats, like they can't be doing this in front of schools, other homeless shelters. So I'm in favor of that. And also opposing sweeps and destructions of tents writ large. And then another thing, and I think this also goes to addressing the affordable housing crisis, is revising these stringent and burdensome zoning ordinances that prohibit higher density buildings maybe in like single family residences, because this is a basic supply and demand issue. The demand is so high, but there's such a low supply of affordable housing. And the more supply there is, while keeping the integrity of the neighborhood intact, there will be more affordable housing units. And to that end, revising and eliminating these unnecessary and burdensome regulations that maybe don't have an incremental benefit towards environment or other things, but cost, make development costs way too high. And then the cost is shifted and burdened onto other people, renters and things like that. 
what else? I talked about the right to counsel law. I think we need to fortify that and invest more money in that because as we know, living in this pandemic, there's so many people who are being evicted from their homes. So giving them that safety net. Buying unused motels, we toured different motels and this was kind of towards a later stage of where I was work when I was working there, but buying out the federal government, the state, allocating money to buy unused motels and transforming them into homeless shelters. That's super important because you'll be surprised how many motels, like they want you because these motel owners aren't making any money. So if the government pays them to kind of transform their property, that's a big deal. That's a cool one. Yeah. Obviously, I think considering a guaranteed jobs program and universal basic income, especially universal basic income, which I think is gaining a lot of traction these days after Andrew Yang's candidacy, but that's like, that can make a humongous difference in people's lives. There's so much that can be done. Can you tell us what cities are included in the 50th district? Yeah. So Agora Hills, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, West LA, West Hollywood, Brentwood, Malibu, Santa Monica, Hancock Park, Fairfax area, Hollywood, Miracle Mile, and Kiko Robertson. So okay, a lot. And you could check, there's a website, findyourrep.legislature.ca.gov where people can go to confirm. And will you tell us your Instagram handle so our listeners yeah, It's at Daniel Brawl, my first and last name. I did have one more question yeah, sure. uh, before we wrap up. Shauna quoted you earlier in Beverly Hills Weekly, mm-hmm. where you said you have empathy, which is so sorely lacking in our leaders right now. Mm-hmm. Did you often encounter a lack of empathy when you were working under the mayor? Not just with him specifically, just with the whole group of leaders. Not in the Office of Economic Opportunity one bit that is why i was so impressed with those people and they don't get enough credit and also you have to understand that there's a lot of people who are at the table who are getting pushed back and everybody has their different interests in these different departments so if the mayor's office of economic opportunity had their say then maybe there are different things and maybe the mayor would be doing a better job but the mayor's office who i work for I thought they were all fantastic. And one reason why, and I always stress this, is because the office was so diverse. Not just diversity in terms of race, but diversity of background and experiences. Like all my higher ups were females of color. So they have a different worldview and they have different lived experiences and they channel that into their work. So I think that's critical that we're talking about diversity in office spaces. It makes a difference. Definitely. I think that's when representation matters most Mm -hmm. because it goes down into what policies actually go forth and what ideas come to fruition. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure that you will encounter that lack of empathy in people that you work with in the future. How do you plan on going about that? I think it's from talking to my friends who will complain to me about for example, homelessness, or, I mean, Sean, you guys know, like, you have yeah, to, a lot of people in our community just are, have that mindset. Yeah, and I, I don't want to make a sweeping claim and overgeneralize, but there's people who don't see it the way I see it, to say it one way, but talking to them, giving them my perspective, and who's to say I'm right, but just having that respectful dialogue and saying, look, we have such a huge issue, 
and it needs to be addressed. Let's find a way forward where we can make progress. The way things are currently is not working clearly. And here's why I think my approach may be the best way forward. But I'm open to hearing what you have to say as well. And let's come to an agreement. At the end of the day, I think no matter where you stand, everyone wants to be heard and everyone wants to somehow make a difference, whether they're right or wrong. And yes. to be open to other ideas is super important, but to also stand your ground and come off with what you know is right and what you think will work is also just as important. I think what you just said is so important. Yes, it's it's crucial to listen and be open-minded and I try to be that way. But at the same time, you can't sacrifice your values. When you know what you believe is the right way and it's not something where you can shortchange or undercut that, you got to stick with it. You can't sacrifice what's right for sake of saying I'm compromising. Definitely. Well, we're really excited to follow you on your journey and get people to vote for you. Yes, please do. The deadline to register is January 11th the deadline to mail your ballot back. And so they have to receive it by January 27th, not postmark. So they have to make sure that the election officials have your ballot in hand by January 27th. And this is a mail-in ballot only election. Postage is free. So please, everybody, if you want to vote, I'm running with the grassroots slate who are 13 other amazing people from diversity of experiences, thoughtful, progressive leaders in their community who want to see a change in the California Democratic Party. So please vote for the Grassroots Slate by going to grassrootsslate.com slash vote. And it's very quick. It's very easy. It takes 20 seconds to register. How did you meet the 13 people on the Grassroots Slate? So... Matthew Finkelstein, individual I mentioned earlier, he connected me to this wonderful lady named Tamara Levinson, who's on the slate. Mm. And she reached out to me and we just connected on more of a deeper level, talking about both being Jewish and what we really care about. So we talked for about 45 minutes and we connected and she talked to the head of our slate, Steve Bott, and he gave me a formal invitation to join the slate. And I said, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. They're great. I'm lucky to be running with them. I'm so yeah. proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And best of luck to you guys. This is amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful for what you guys are doing and getting more people to get involved and in showing that, yes, this may not be a glamorous and sexy issue, but it's important. And we need everybody to be involved somehow if we actually want to make a dent in this crisis. 100%. It means a lot to you and we can tell. So Thank you. I'm glad that came through. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Talk to you guys soon. All right.